Hello, everyone. Welcome to Murder and Malfeasance. This was originally supposed to be the first uh, case that we were going to uh, explore together. And uh, unfortunately, our uh, good friend and uh, our legal analyst, defense attorney, former prosecutor of Grimes County, and my good friend for many years, David Barron, suddenly passed away. We are heartbroken, as you can imagine, and uh, just uh, still in a state of shock on this. And uh, David was a good friend for many years. David was born in Bryan in uh, 1956, and uh, he was the second son to Judge John M. Barron and his mother, Mildred Barron. And uh, David passed away at his home on July 26th. Uh, he was uh, born into a family of prominent attorneys. His father, John M. Barron Sr., was a lawyer and served as district judge in Brazos and Robertson County, as well as a justice on the 14th Court of Appeals. David's lawyer grandfather, W.S. Barron, served as Speaker of the Texas House of Representatives, as well as district judge of Brazos and Robertson Counties. David's aunt and uncle practiced law, as well as his older brother, John M. Barron, Jr., who was uh, also county attorney uh, in the uh, 80s and uh, I think part of the 90s in Brazos County. Um, David uh, graduated from Bryan High School in 1974, went to college at Sam Houston State University where he obtained his degree in 78. And following the family tradition, David graduated from Baylor Law School and passed the bar exam in 1981. And then he returned to Bryan and practiced law with his father and his brother. And in 1985, David went to work for Grimes County uh, District Attorney's Office. And then he successfully ran for Grimes County District Attorney in 1988 and was reelected in 1992. And after he left Grimes County, he returned to Brazos County to resume practicing with his older brother, John. And uh, David was a highly skilled lawyer and was board, board certified in criminal law by the State Bar of Texas. And he was extremely successful as a private uh, practitioner. He was much in demand. Uh, many other attorneys would retain him as second chair to them on trial uh, cases. Some of the attorneys were Travis Bryan, Billy Carter, Philip Banks, uh, Jerry Gribble, Hernandez, uh, Daniel Hernandez, and many others. And uh, from everything I've heard and everything I've seen over the years, David knew the law. He could think on his feet, was a skilled cross-examiner, and David was always ready to mentor young lawyers and help them get established. He was a kind, generous, funny man, and he loved the combat of the courtroom. David loved fighting to protect the rights of accused citizens he represented and also a zealous 
advocate for the downtrodden. He, like I say, was, was quite a guy and we're going to miss him greatly. Um, what's uh, following is I have uh, recorded some uh, speakers that uh, spoke at his memorial and uh, <laughs> I don't know the last time I've laughed so much uh, hearing about his courtroom antics but uh, I'll let them tell the story uh, for me. And the first up that you're going to hear from is uh, Travis Judge Travis Bryan III. Good morning. Thank you all for coming. This is a, just an awesome turnout for David. I am just almost brought to tears by all you folks that came out to honor your friend. Thank you very much. Let me open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this gathering that you brought together here today in honor of our friend who we loved and meant so much in each of our lives. Lord, I ask you to bless this time, bless the speakers, give them the words to say, and bless all of us as we celebrate the life of David Stewart Barron. In Jesus' name, amen. And now uh, it's just a real thrill to me to, to introduce these uh, speakers, and they're all lawyers, so uh, I've, I've given them a limit of five minutes, <laughs> and I have no confidence that they will limit themselves to five minutes. So I, if I get up, if it goes too long, I'm just going to get up, and uh, you know, when the judge gets up, then it's time to quit. Uh, so we're going to hear from Jason Goss, who first uh, had a great relationship with David, uh, great friends. Tuck McLean, who was uh, David's assistant DA when they were prosecuting over in Grimes County. Uh, Tuck is now the uh, county court at law judge in Grimes County. Phil Banks, a uh, relative of David's, a great friend of David's, loved him very much. Uh, and he and his daughter, Amy, have been responsible for putting this service together. And it's what a great turnout. I just can't get over I just wish Barron could see how many people loved him and showed up. Uh, he liked for people to love him, by the way. Uh, and uh, finally, Billy Carter, uh, who was uh, one of his best friends and a, a trial partner of mine in, in several trials and uh, a person who David loved very much. And then I'll follow that with some remarks and uh, so with the first speaker please step up. Jason, if you're here, thank you. Good morning. Um, yeah, thank y'all for allowing me to do this. I'm, uh, you know, David was one of those guys. It's, it's kind of funny when I saw Judge up here, the first time I really talked to David, I was in Judge Bryan's courtroom and I was a, I was new to Brasses County. I had practiced for maybe a year, but I'd come in and, and Bill Turner who's back there hired me. And Jarvis was my first chair and we were in, in Travis's court. And when Judge Bryan said he saw me and he saw David, he said, Goss, come here. 
you need to talk to Baron. I think you two would get along. And, <laughs> and we did. And, and, you know, so I, one of the things with, with David and I, um, back then I smoked cigarettes, and of course you all know that David did. And, and David's office was the only place you could smoke inside in Brazos County, it seemed like. <laughs> so that's where, I'd, that's where I'd go. I'd find an excuse to go talk to him about cases, and we'd sit in his office that was his father's, and we'd talk about the law. And we talk about all kinds of other things. So the story I want to tell you guys today is, it's a war story, and usually the teller is the hero in a war story, but in this one, David was. We had a case together that we tried. It was a, it was a kind of a small case. Uh, David's client, I was the prosecutor, David's defense attorney. David's client was accused of taking a couple of checks uh, and forging them, about $500 and $300 total uh, value. Our complaining witness was a 104-year-old woman. And uh, I tried the case with, with Jess Caskew, and David defended her. The, his client was a caretaker for her and was accused of forging these checks, and we believed our complaining witness. And, and one of the interesting things about her is her son-in-law was a guy named Wally Moon, who was a famous baseball player for Texas A&M and went to the World Series. And Wally was, I, I mean, this woman, this woman had lived so long that Wally was 89 years old, and that's her son-in-law. And Wally, uh, great guy, fantastic guy, helped us with her, helped us kind of get to the, the funeral home, I mean, I'm sorry, the nursing home, helped us to um, uh, David Barron, he had to go and, and, and do a, a deposition, a video deposition, because she was too uh, unable to come to court to actually testify. So we get to the end of this trial, after we tried it, and David, he, he, as you all know, most of you all who know him know he's a great lawyer, fantastic, and we lost the case. And, you know, he was always magnanimous, he was always generous, but we lost it. And I talked to Wally, and I called him, and Jessica and I, we called him, we said, Wally, I'm sorry, but the jury came back not guilty. And Wally said, you know, she probably did write those checks and forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And... I was crushed. Uh, you know, as a prosecutor, you're just going like, oh, thank God they found her not guilty. Oh, my gosh. Me and Jessica were like, ugh. So I go over, and, and I go over to, to David, you know, because I knew I was going to have to go tell him that. And I go over to David, and when I told him, he laughed. And if y'all know, know David, y'all know his laugh. It's like that high-pitched giggle. He thought it was hilarious that that happened. But then the next thing he did was he looked at me, and he said, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And he said, I'm going to tell you this. I would have believed her too. So you don't have to worry about that. The law and, and juries, they'll do the right thing. And they did the right thing. He said, but it's not about you. Because I, he, said if, he said, I was in your shoes. I was a DA. I was a prosecutor. I would have believed her so you don't have any kind of problem. And for me, you know, there's a lot of trial lawyers in this room. And... <laughs> We all know that most of us would give in to the temptation to crow about it, right? Most of us would give in. Most of us would, would have this idea of like, look at this guy prosecuting this innocent woman. But he didn't think that. Um, and he made sure that I didn't think that because he cared about me. You know, he, he wanted me to be okay. And he said, look, don't worry about us. We're okay. I, I whipped you. <laughs> so you don't got to worry about it. Um, <laughs> But, you know, he did it in that David way. So, I, you know, I don't want to tell you all that because that's, you know, that's, that's one of those things that talks about who David was as a mentor, as somebody who I could go and talk to, as somebody who um, cared about other people. 
you know, cared about his friends and wanted to make sure they were okay. The other thing that me and David bonded about was a guy named Earl Rogers. And David and I were the only two people who had ever talked to each other in our lives that knew who Earl Rogers was. He was a trial lawyer in the early, early 20th century. This guy was so good that Clarence Darrow, when he got in trouble, this is who Clarence Darrow hired to defend him. Um, fantastic trial lawyer. Kind of innovated a lot of the stuff, and David and I bonded over that. So one of the things that we do is, is uh, and one of the things he did is he got me this book, and it's called Once Upon a Time in Los Angeles, The Trial of Earl Rogers. And so one of the things about Earl is, is that he was a brilliant trial lawyer, but he had substance abuse issues, alcoholic, and I, I think David identified a lot with him. And a lot of the times when we would talk, one of the themes that David kept saying over and over is, is he would say, I see it in you. I see, I see brilliance, but don't do what I did. And he would, he would mentor, and he would talk about it. And he would say, and he was open. I mean, if you knew David, he was open about, about his failings. He was open about everything that he had done right, but also the stuff he had done wrong. Um, and so he gave me this book, and I have this inscription. That's why I brought it today. It said, to my friend Jason Goss, he, he signed this on June 2nd of 2014. To my friend Jason Goss, the next Earl Rogers of Brazos County, absent the craving for a cold one, best wishes, for, best wishes for the future, David Barron. And so I wanted to read you one little thing. What we'd do is, is we'd get these books, he gave it to me, and then I'd find something and I'd go over and read it to him and make him laugh, and then he'd find something and he'd read it to me and make me laugh. And So I'm going to read this, and it may make you laugh, it may not, but I'll tell you that it made him laugh. And if you remember his laugh, I just want you to think about him when I get done with it, laughing at it. This is a Earl Rogers case where he was defending a guy who was accused of murdering his wife. Um, one of the allegations was is that he was, he was a pimp. Um, so he had, married, he had married a girl that, that he was also a pimp for, and then he was accused of murdering her. And he closed and he finished and he said, My friends of the jury, has it come to pass in our day that a man may be sent to the penitentiary or even hanged solely upon the testimony of a pimp, a prostitute, and a policeman. <laughs> the lengthy closing argument was designed to emotionally manipulate each of the God-fearing and church-going jurors, and the strategy proved to be successful. The jury, regardless of the damning evidence, acquitted Boutry, his client, on the first ballot. Outside the courtroom, in the presence of several people and some reporters, a relieved and appreciative client approached Rogers with an outstretched hand to thank him. With a palpable look of disgust, Rogers turned away from Moutry and, blur and blurted, get away from me, you slimy pimp. You're as guilty as hell and you know it. <laughs> David, David loved that. And, and, if you, and you know why he loved it. It's, it's, uh, that was one of the things that made him laugh. So, you know, in closing, um, there, there's a line that says, you know, as God looked down on us from his heavenly throne, he said, I see where I've made so many poets, but not so very much poetry. And David was poetry, and I'll miss it. Next speaker is Chuck McClain. I thought it appropriate to walk up here with nothing but a yellow pad and a pen. because David would kick your butt with nothing but a yellow pad and a pen. Um, I go back a long time with David. Uh, I didn't like David at first, really. Um, I started out with him because I was part of the Bill Turner 
district attorney's office when Bill first came in. I don't even know if Travis realizes it, but I was an undergraduate intern and started the January that Bill Turner became district attorney. Actually, Travis hired me. Actually, Jim Boviak hired me to work with Travis. In the meantime, Travis left the office, and I ended up working for, for Billy. I was going to be a cop. Anyways, working there, I got exposed to a lot of great lawyers, and David Barron was one of them. But David was part of this cabal of defense attorneys that Kaboviak and others had convinced me were the evil scourges of Brazos County. <laughs> Phil was one of them. <laughs> Neely, others. And so I kind of had this distaste for the crew. And also this was a political turmoil. Bill Turner was getting ready to make his first run for DA. Kaboviak was announced to run for county attorney. There was a lot of political battling going on, and it was my initiation to politics. And David was running against Kaboviak for county attorney. So naturally, I, I didn't care for him. I went through the election. Barron lost the election. Kaboviak won. Somebody talked me into going to law school, J.D. Langley, I think. And I left, went to law school. Came back three years later, went to work for Kaboviak in Brazos County in J.D. Langley's court, no less, which was painful, extremely painful. Um, but it was a great learning experience, and I tried a lot of cases in a couple of years, and I didn't know, I never thought about David at that point. I kind of knew he was floating around. I knew, I, in fact, he was in my home county, Grimes County. Well, next thing I know, David becomes district attorney of Grimes County. I'd been prosecuting a couple of years in Grimes, and to give you an idea, David was always surrounded with chaos, it seemed like. And David had become district attorney and hired a brilliant lady lawyer out of Madison, <clears throat> Madisonville named Rita McCorkadale, which was great. But then he also fell in love with Rita's sister and married her, which created a nepotism problem. So Rita had to leave. Well, I don't know who talked to David, but... Some of them talked to him and said, look, there's this fat guy down in Grimes County that's not a half-bad lawyer. Why don't you see if he'll come be your assistant DA? And so David calls me. Now, remember, I didn't really like him. So I thought, nah, I don't, really, don't want to work for David. And people talked to me, Big John LaFleur, Ann Craddock, Latham Boone. They're all saying, come on, come home, work with David. There's some political fences that need mending. Maybe you can do it, your hometown. I said, okay, I'm fine. And everything in my life should have told me not to do this. I was taking a pay cut. I was going to work for somebody I didn't really care about. But it was a God thing. And I went to work for him. It was unbelievable. It was chaos. In fact, the week before I go to work for David, I took a week off between Brazos County and Grimes County. My mother-in-law called me and said, Tuff, what's that job you're taking Proudly said, Deputy District Attorney of Grimes, Madison, and Leon counties. You might want to pick up the paper, or David so fondly called it the Weekly White. <laughs> and on the headlines was Deputy District Attorney funding in doubt. <laughs> David was in Hawaii on a rather protracted honeymoon. And I'm thinking, my God, what have I done? 
Brenda Williams, who was now the secretary, an old classmate of mine from high school, was there, and she called me. She said, tough, it's going to be okay. We'll work it out. And we did. David came back from his honeymoon. We went on about a two-week apology tour through three counties for not doing whatever it is they didn't think we were doing. I hadn't even been there. I don't know what I was apologizing for, but <laughs> I did, by God. And I started working for him, and I realized how little I knew. Because this guy would pull things out of his head that most other seasoned lawyers had never heard of. It was just fabulous. But at the same time, you had the sense of humor of a 12-year-old. <laughs> we office, we're our office now on the third floor of the old Grimes County Courthouse. There's two offices and a little landing that separates them. I was in one side with Brenda, and David was in the other side. David would get up run over into our office, fart, <laughs> giggle, and run back to his office. <laughs> this was the district attorney of three counties. <laughs> and of course, I reciprocated. <laughs> Much to Brenda's chagrin. He loved jokes, quips, puns, making songs. He loved telling fat jokes to me like I didn't know I was fat, but he took <laughs> great joy in it. Want to stop on the way home and get a little Debbie and some Yoo-Hoo? <laughs> yeah, that's what we did. Uh, I mean, and then we tried to, the first case he handed to me was this file about this thick. It looked like somebody had stood on the third floor of the courthouse and thrown it and then just kind of scooped it up. It was just this train wreck of a file. And I look at it, and it's a nine-man drug conspiracy case involving international drug smugglers and a satanic cult in Madame Moore that ate people. That was what he handed me for my first case to start getting ready. Up to that point, the most serious thing I'd ever tried was a DWI. And, I, and, I, and I'm just going, what are we doing? But when he stepped into that element, this brilliance just came out. We tried that case, and two of the defense attorneys were my law school professors, people that several years before were teaching me law, teaching me criminal law, criminal procedure. And David Barron mopped the courtroom with them. He was brilliant. He also got very, he loved, his, loved the people involved in the case, the victims when he was district attorney, and his clients when he was Defending him. If David had had his way, and he told me this multiple times when he was DA, I just wish I could prosecute in Grimes, Madison, and Leon, and then run everywhere else and be a defense attorney. Because he loved the law. It wasn't about being the DA like it was for me. I was a prosecutor. That's all I did for 30 years. But he loved the law, both sides of it. And he knew it. And he wanted to be on both sides. But he loved, loved the people that he worked for, whether it was a victim of crime or whether it was one of his clients that he was defending. It was a crazy seven years I worked for him, and I learned a lot. He would do things in trial that no one else could get away with. Madison County, trying a case against little Billy, and he got tired of Billy's constant Annoying objections. 
And so he decided to reciprocate, and so he turned around, put his feet up on the railing, and leaned back. And the only judge that would probably let him get away with this without going to jail was Erwin Ernie Ernst. And he started singing his objections to Billy. <laughs> Objection! And about the fourth time he did it, Billy was forced to, in Billy's manner of calming him, Judge, we would really appreciate it if you could instruct the district attorney to cease singing his objections and just speak them to us. <laughs> David, and it's come up, David loved listening to juries. If he could find a way to listen to a jury deliberation, he would. Made me sick. I wanted to throw up. He was trying to case, again, against Billy in Madisonville one time. Political hot potato. So there was a lot of nerves in it. The jury was out deliberating. Well, David figured out you could go into the judge's bathroom, stand on the toilet, lift up the suspended ceiling, and the cinder block walls didn't go all the way to the hot top. So right on the other side of the cinder block wall that didn't go all the way up was the bathroom and the jury room. And so David could hear what was going on. So David walked in here, of course, Ernst is the judge, and he let him do it. And David would get up on there, stick his head up through the ceiling like some little gopher popping up out of there, and listen. And then he would hear something he didn't like. David would jump down, try to be as quiet as possible, raise the toilet lid, and throw up. <laughs> Close the toilet lid, climb back up like the little gopher, stick his head back up there. I bet you David threw up 15 times during that deliberation. He was just irreverent. He was unpredictable. He would sit there, and again, his favorite target for most of this was Billy. Y'all, Most of y'all are lawyers. You understand the term opening the door. That is, let, you know, saying something that's going to let in evidence that otherwise wouldn't be able to come in. And Barron would sit back in his chair while Dave, Dave, Billy was asking questions. He'd hold his arm across his chest, and he'd slowly start going. And you could just see the look on Billy's face. <laughs> Trying, number one, to figure out what in the hell he was fixing to do. And it, of course, the only purpose was just to try to keep Billy off the game, which was almost impossible. But it's for the game they played. And it was fabulous to watch. He wrote an opera one time about an investigation we did in Navasota. And he wrote a song with stage directions. And the antagonist of his story, which was based on the play Evita, <laughs> he decided to write the song instead of Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, was Don't Cry For Me, Navasota. <laughs> and he started his song out with stage directions, enter stage right. Antagonist, writing on a burro. And he would come in singing his song, Don't cry for me, Navasota. <laughs> and he didn't sing much better than I do. <laughs> he loved picking juries. He had a sixth sense about it. We'd go through jury selection. We'd have 10 strikes to get rid of people. We'd get to about strike five or six. I'd say, we got four more, David. Don't need them. What? We don't need them. I know what I got. I'm ready. And he was. We would get down on our trial list to number 15 on the trial, and I was the one prepped the cases. He hadn't looked at them. I said, David, we're not ready. I'll pick a jury. 
you get the witnesses ready. And he would stand up with a yellow pad with three or four words written on it, and he would go in there, and he would pick a fabulous jury, just on instinct. It was unbelievable. He mentored so many of us. There's no doubt in my mind that I wouldn't be who and what I am without him. But he was also haunted. You know, when I was thinking about talking today, and I talked to Billy about this a little bit a while ago, I said, I struggled with how much truth I needed to talk about. David struggled, we all know, with alcoholism. And it was the term that I was with him was his first recollection, his first point where he realized I've got a problem. In fact, it was that understanding that ultimately caused him to resign as district attorney and opened the door for me to a job I held for almost 30, for 22 years. So he struggled. And I don't understand why God put such a great mind and such a great sense of humor in a flawed person to that regard. But we are all flawed. But that was one that just tore on him, pulled him down constantly. Every time he seemed like he was getting a grip, it reached up and grabbed him and pulled on him. And I, I looked, I said, you know, God, he could have been a great judge. I mean, I can't imagine a better justice or judge on the Court of Criminal Appeals than David Barron. He should have been there. And so I'm, I'm looking, trying to kind of understand and figure out, well, where do I go with this? I don't want a sad story. David wasn't a sad person. David was a hilarious person. And so got my Bible, kind of thumbing through, said, come on, you know, give me some guidance here. And I ran across a couple of verses, and I'm not going to preach to you, but I think it's important for us to understand. One of them was Paul writing to Timothy. And Paul said to Timothy, command those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant or put hope in their wealth, which is uncertain, but to put hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our own enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. And I thought, you know, I have a habit, and I think we all do, of looking at people, especially when we're talking about them that they've passed on. What did they achieve? What were their goals? You know, I'm going I'm to be the former district attorney, county court at law, you know, stuff like that. And I know David longed for a lot of that. But, you know, folks, that didn't make any difference. It's the lives you touch. It's the people you save. And David touched so many of us. He saved so many of us. And my hope is, and my belief is, that when he got into heaven, the Lord sat down with him and showed him all of us and what he did for us. I believe, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. And hopefully David knows now the treasure that he was for all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. That was wonderful. Uh, our next speaker is...
Still thanks. I wish I'd gone first. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, like I said, that was both Jason and Chuck just did a fantastic job. And, um, you know, I was thinking about David um, the other day when I heard this uh Dwight Yoakam song about I sang Dixie while he died and there was a line in there that the bottle had robbed him of all his rebel pride. But the thing about David is he had rebel pride up until the end of his life. He uh, was very proud, he was very productive and at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, David whipped the jug, okay? It knocked him down, but he always got back up. He always fought. And um, David was the crazy redneck little brother I never had, you know? And uh, like brothers, sometimes uh, we would uh, clash. And, but I've always wanted him on my side if I was in a, a trial. Um, and um, there's, a, um, there's a, another uh, Texas songwriter I want to quote. Uh, Phil Joe Shaver wrote a song where he said, You're wild as a Texas blue norther ready rolled from the same makings as me. And that applies to my relationship with David. Uh, but David, um, we're talking truth here now, David loved publicity, okay? <laughs> and he was a genius at press release. And early in, in our careers, I had a, a, a church case where my clients were trying to fire the preacher. And we had a lady named Sinfronia Thompson, who's been in the legislature forever, wonderful lawyer, real sweet lady, but she was good. And so there's two, you know, little yahoos trying this case against this very prominent, uh, brilliant Houston attorney. And uh, I did most of the work on, I had the case, I did most of the work on the case. David came in and, uh, and helped me with it, but it was really my case. We win the case, okay? And I think, this has got to help my career, you know? <laughs> and then the front page of the paper, it, it doesn't mention me, but it says, 
David Barron, one of the attorneys for the... <laughs> and um, uh, another time, I tried a, uh, a rape case against David over in Centerville. And, uh, you know, it was one of these things, I opened the door, I, I was asking the victim why she hadn't tried to escape and David said, Judge, Mr. Banks, open the door. Now I get to ask about his client's murder conviction. You know? <laughs> um, so they give my client uh, life and a $10,000 fine. <laughs> and... Um, and so, while we're waiting on the, on the jury to come back, and they're, they're just about to give us the life sentence, David says, hey, Phil, look at this. And he pulls his pants leg up. He's wearing these socks that say, it's life. Okay? <laughs> um, so, I am so sick of that case, okay? It took a week, and I'm just terribly sick of it. And uh, so I come home, and uh, front page of the Eagle. It doesn't it maybe mention David, but it mentioned me that my client got life and a $10,000 fine. And um, so I, uh, at the time, my daughter Amy had a Shetland pony. And I would go to this old farmer out here on the way to Hearn and buy hay for the pony. And so uh, I see him, and he was a neat little old man. And uh, he was always up and wearing it. But that day, he was wearing his bathrobe, and he looked depressed. And I, I said, Mr. Moman, are, are you all right? And he said, well, I'm better than you. I read about David Barron kicking your ass over his <laughs> own. You know, uh, and uh, <laughs> anyway, um, right after David got to be DA or assistant DA, uh, Judge Ernst, who was like I say, probably the greatest, uh, one of the greatest trial lawyers that ever lived when he was at the DA's office, Judge Ernst starts appointing me on all these cases. And I thought, you know, this is flattering. This guy that's a wonderful uh, lawyer thinks I'm good because he keeps appointing me on all these cases. And so I mentioned it to Wayne Rucker, who was the district clerk. I said, Judge Ernst sure is appointing me a lot. And Wayne said, oh, yeah, he likes to watch you and David get into it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, and uh, so, very deflationary, okay? Uh, but David would, uh, he did that. He would set little traps for me. He was always a couple jumps ahead of me, and he'd set these little traps, and like a big bear, I would just kind of stumble into them. And one day, he had done something to make me mad, and... Um, uh, so I got over to Grimes County 
real early. It was a foggy day, you know. And I, I got over to Grimes County, and I was waiting for him because I was going to jump him, you know. And he said, um, he said, when I was driving up to the courthouse and I saw you glaring at me through the fog, I kept thinking, gorillas in the mist, you know. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you know, um, having, uh, I started once, uh, you know, a, a few years ago, I started, uh, every time I could, I would try to get David affiliated with me on cases because he was so brilliant and so intuitive and, um, you know, it was kind of like affiliating Jesse James to rob a bank with you or something, you know? Or Doc Holliday to, to carry the shotgun into the OK Corral. I mean, David was, uh, was awesome and gave you an edge. Uh, anyway, uh, is, uh, right when David ran against uh, uh, Big Jim Kravowiak, I'd gone to law school with Jim, and Jim and I were friends. And so I said, uh, uh, I went up and talked to Jim, and I said, Jim, you know, I have to be with David on this, on this race, you know. And Jim said, well, I understand. You know that deep voice, you know. I said, no, you really don't understand. I'm telling you I got to be with David, and you're saying you understand. If I told David I had to be with you, he and Squeaky would be burning crosses in my front yard, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, anyway, the, uh, and speaking of Squeaky, I gotta, I gotta mention this. Uh, you know, David's uh, term, his DA ended when he was coming back from Renaissance Festival and he drove into the J.P.'s feed store over in Anderson, okay? And so Squeaky was asking me, uh, I said, Phil, do you know if David took a blood test? And I said, John, I, I, I don't know. And he said, do you know if he's going to have to resign? And I said, John, I, I don't know. And, and Squeak said, uh, well, we know one thing for certain. And I said, what's that, John? He said, we know that feed store didn't pull out in front of him. <laughs> um, <laughs> And ultimately, uh, David wanted to be, and he was, uh, a hero, okay? He wanted to be a hero. Uh, he, loved, uh, he loved Winston Churchill, and there was a line that Churchill had used, and I go over to see David, and, um, you know, he said, Tell Phil I'm in the toilet, and I can only take one shit at a time. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, I he he was he was hilarious, and um, he was hilarious, and you know he uh, he ultimately, and this is the thing that we need to uh, all remember about him. At the end of the day, 
uh, in spite of all the uh, disappointments he'd had and, and problems he'd had, uh, he beat alcohol. He whipped its ass, okay? And I was so proud of him. And as much as he loved Churchill, I would have to say that uh, there's as much heroism and David battling the alcoholism as there was in Churchill battling Hitler and the Nazis. He was um, a very brave man and a wonderfully good man, but it really doesn't matter how brilliant he was, and it doesn't really matter how hilariously funny he was. He was a kind, good, big-hearted man. And he loved all of us and uh, all the good people here today. I'm, I'm so grateful for. Now, my wife's getting ready to start doing this <laughs> deal of, you know, uh, where she uh, tells me to sit down and shut up. So, Judge, I don't need your input. I, I've got, a, <laughs> I got it right here. Well, you know, I hope that uh, in the days to come that, uh, well, like I said, I'm, I am desperate because I used him so much and I relied on him so much and I counted on him so much on a personal and on a professional basis. And so I've been, um, I mean, I'm sorry about David, but I got, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, um, I, but he, uh, we were all just so lucky to get to have him in our lives. And um, I say I appreciate all y'all turning out to, you know, tell him goodbye. Thank you. I dearly love David Bear. He was a dear friend of mine. And I don't cannot tell you how much I have grieved over his this loss for me personally. I first met him in 1985 when he came to work with Lathan Boone and, Lee, and Grimes, Leon, and Madison as the assistant district attorney. And it's kind of unusual that he and I, for some reason, became fast friends, close friends, dear friends, for 36 years. And we would go to court and fight with each other like you wouldn't believe. But our relationship was unique in so many ways. We'd be trying a case when he was a prosecutor in Leon County. And there were times when he would come and stay at 
our house in Madisonville, eat with us, and we would drive to court the next day and go to war. And I can remember, and we would ride together to the Court of Appeals to argue cases. And he had a great sense of humor, like everybody has said, the wittiest guy I've ever known. And I could tell stories about him for the rest of the day. But in 1988, when he ran for district attorney, I was his campaign manager. And we had devised some rules of the campaign, things that I wanted Barron to make sure and do to help him get elected. And of course, knowing Barron, as you all know Barron, rules to him are just a piece of paper and just some words. And, but, and he had this little silver Mazda truck. And when he would come to Madison County, he would park his truck right in front of the courthouse. So everybody that was coming to court could walk right by his truck and look in the bed of his truck. So we're picking a jury on a Monday morning. And of course, he's there early, little silver Mazda truck parked right in front of the courthouse. And I happened to be picking the jury against him that day. So I'm walking over to the courthouse, and I walk by his truck and look in the bed of the truck. And in a great political move for Barron, there were beer cans everywhere <laughs> at first in the bed of the truck, just junk, trash everywhere. But the most telling thing was, as I was walking by to the end of his truck, I peered in and saw a pair of underwear. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, boy, how, they, how many jurors have come by and looked in this truck and, of all things, see a pair of Fruit of the Loom underwear? So I immediately go upstairs and say, Baron, get down and get the underwear out of your truck or hide it. And Typical Baron, he said, I'll, I'll wait till the end of the day. And that was, that was just David, you know. But, you know, I have so many wonderful memories about him. And Judge and I tried one case against him three times. And it just, you have to be on your toes all the time when you dealt with Baron. I mean, he would pull so many things on you, and I can just think about so many lawyers are here. We all know about exculpatory evidence and what the prosecutor has to do to inform us of, of evidence that helps us in a trial. And Judge and I are in a murder case in, down in Polk County. Tried it for the third time. Barron and Tucker, the prosecutors. The tire tracks and our client's truck tires became very critical because Barron and Tuck were claiming that our clients had driven his truck from the murder scene and turned around in a road and they got tire marks and they were going to take his tires and compare them. So they go hire this 
great expert out of Houston named Lucky Steiermeyer. And so Lucky was turned out not to be Lucky for Baron and them. <laughs> but Baron and Tuck find out that the tires don't match. And this is critical evidence for us. And so we're going to start our trial on Monday. We're in our motel room. We've got settled in. And here's how Baron gave us notice of this exculpatory evidence. I get a phone call. Nothing in writing. A phone call about 6 o'clock on Sunday, as Judge Bryan said, on the eve of trial. And the conversation went like this, and I swear to God this is the truth. <laughs> because Judge heard it, and Tuck probably will verify this. <laughs> it went like this. Carter, y'all settled into your motel room. Yes, we are. Do you like it? Yes, we do. Is there a buffet there? <laughs> yes, there is. Tires don't match. Where, where are y'all going to eat tonight? <laughs> and so, and, and, you, and so I said, wait a minute. What would you just say? I said, where are you going to eat? And, and I said, wait a minute. What did you say before that? And so he finally said, tires don't match. And so now you prosecutors, this is before Michael Martin, so please don't give us notice this way. But, but I swear only Baron would do that. And the next day, we get up at trial, and of course, Judge Bryan, he says, on the eve of trial, they give us this information. And during this trial, I'm glad Tuck brought up the singing objection. And I've, I've not seen one prosecutor in my life that I've had to make an objection to making singing objections, except <laughs> David Barron. But... In this trial, he went way beyond that. What he did, when he didn't like a witness, he would show it. Barron could not not show things. He, he, he was, it was impossible when he would give a notice of, an, of opening the door. He had to get my attention. And so if he didn't get my attention, what he would start doing is coughing. And he would go, <coughs> <coughs> and once, once I would look at him, that's when he would go like this. But until then, he wouldn't. But we, so when he didn't like a witness or a witness hurt him, man, you could tell it. And so we bring a witness in this case who he hated. We get up and say we bring so-and-so. What he does, he turns his chair immediately to the back of the courtroom, never looked at her, and would sing his objections. And Tuck, it was horrible. He would lean back and just say, objection. And, 
And so finally, Judge Brian and I went further than the previous time, said, Judge, we object to Mr. Barron's singing objections. If he's going to sing them, we wish he would sing on key. <laughs> you know? And again, in the same case, a witness comes in and really hurts his case about seeing out the window. And he was a police officer named Ken Clary. And Ken had quit being an officer, and the next day he was going to his new job. And after he gets up, and I mean hurts David and Buck's case really bad, I've never seen a prosecutor do this. As Mr. Clary is leaving the courtroom, what does Barron do? In a very condescending way, he says, good luck in your new profession. <laughs> and of course, we object to that. It's sustained. But I, I have so many stories about this guy. He, we were trying a death penalty case in Leon County. And I put an expert on named Jim Whitley. And he gave some testimony about interpreting the Rorschach test that he asked questions of my client. So Barron takes him on cross. And he's going to be real cute, so he is going to now cross-examine Dr. Whitley, and he's going to tell Dr. Whitley what he sees in the Rorschach test. So, Judge Ernst is on the bench. So the first thing he said, Doctor, what if I told you that, that this looked like two polar bears fighting? <laughs> Dr. Whitley says, I would think that would mean that you had a problem with your father. So the jury kind of snickers a little bit. Baron, being Baron, gets the next and says, well, what if I told you that this was butterflies dancing? What would that tell you, doctor, about me? Doctor paused a minute and said, it would tell me you have some sexual issues. <laughs> so, so, Judge Ernst, being the great jurist he was, said, David, would you like some more ink blocks for him to interpret for you? But David left that alone. And I've, I've got to tell a couple of more of his stories that are just fascinating me about him being a rebel. And we tried a murder case, and I believe it was in front of Tuck and Miss Bender. And Judge Sandal had issued a gag order, which means the lawyers cannot talk about the case. And I always contended that a gag order to Barron and to Tuck was an order that they're not supposed to eat too much because they were not going to abide by them. But we had a gag order. And so what happens at the trial at Vordire? Judge 
granted our motion to suppress, and so Tuck immediately, I mean, Tuck immediately said, we're going to appeal this, and we're going to shut the trial down, and that's what happened. So Baron and I get in my car, and we're leaving to drive back to the office. He's immediately on the phone. And I said, Baron, who you calling? So I'm calling KBTX. <laughs> I said, we have a gag order. He said, I know that. Well, then why are you doing it? Because Tuck's going good. I, I want to beat him to it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, can't, I, I cannot do this without telling you all that he and Travis got into it in the murder case that we were involved in in Livingston at the end of one of the days in trial. It was a heated trial. And both of them just basically square off and they challenge each other, well, by God, we'll just step outside and finish this. <laughs> so they're going to go downstairs and fight, and luckily Judge Mac Adams was able to temper that situation. But... This guy, though, Christmas time, he just had some, so much wit about him. He could find so much humor in things. And sometimes his humor, I think, overshadowed his legal brilliance. He and Frank Blazik were the two or the two greatest lawyers I ever saw and I've ever worked with dealing with jury charges. He had such a wonderful imagination, and it was just an honor for me to have been in his presence and to have had his friendship for all these years. And I'm going to tell you one more barren story, and you'd appreciate this. We're trying to get a change of venue on a case that Miss Bender and Tuck were doing. It's Lonnie Turner case, if I remember right, from Grimes County to Walker County. So we took the position that you couldn't hear real well in Grimes County, and I, being an older guy, was at a disadvantage because I couldn't hear what the witnesses were saying. So I thought it would be a great idea to bring Barron as a witness and have him testify about you can't hear in, the, you know, in Grimes County court, in the courtroom. So I said, Baron, I want to bring you as a witness. And I didn't woodshed him or anything. Just said, just, I'm just going to ask you about, can you hear? So I said, Judge Keeling, I want to call David Barron. So I called Barron to the stand. He gets up, and I started asking him questions. I said, would you, would you please state your name to the court? Now, what did Barron do? He said, What? And the testimony got better after that, I can tell y'all. But you know, we tell great stories about Barron. You know, all of us have crosses to bear. Some of our crosses are heavier than others. And my dear friend, he bore a heavy cross.
and I saw him bear it for a long time. I saw him in the sunshine and in dark shadows. I saw him in the peaks and valleys. And above his wit and his sense of humor and his legal brilliance, the thing I love about my dear friend the most was how he carried that cross and won that victory. And it was a long struggle, a hard struggle. And that's the one thing, that's the testament that he leaves in the legacy to me that is the most pronounced about my dear friend. He looked the demon in the eye and didn't give up. He kept fighting, and it was a long, hard struggle. Some of us witnessed it firsthand. And he was able to gain a glorious victory, a great triumph. And that's what I will remember about him always. Some guy wrote that God gave us memories where we might See roses bloom in December. And some of the memories I have personally with my beloved friend will make all of my Decembers that remain a rose garden of exquisite beauty. If any of y'all have ever seen the movie, My dog Skip. You need to watch it sometime. It's a movie based on a book by Willie Morris. Willie Morris from, was from Yazoo City, Mississippi. And Willie was a Rhodes Scholar. I believe he was the, the youngest editor ever for Atlantic Monthly. And he loved this dog, Skip. Grew up with him. And when Skip died, his mother called him and said, Skip died. We took him and wrapped him in one of your little baseball jackets and buried him in the backyard under the elm tree. And Willie Marsh said this. He said, that's not totally true. For he really lies buried in my heart. And they will take my beloved friend to the cemetery today. And they will bury him in that dirt. But that's only partly true. Because David Barron, my beloved friend, really lies buried in my heart. And he will stay with me forever. And I know that when I cross the river and find shade in the trees, when I see him, the stories we tell will probably even be better. Thank you. Thank you, Billy. Uh, hope y'all not getting tired of sitting because I got to have my my time also about David. <laughs> David Stewart Barron left this world the other day and went to be with his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.
he was a Christian. He loved reading the Bible. He loved talking to me about Scripture, and uh, the love of God was in his heart. His funny things that he did, the entertaining way that he did things, uh, the excellent lawyering, the great friend of all of us, will be missing now at the courthouse. And I promise you, there's going to be a void there. There's going to be an empty space that I'm not sure anybody else can fill. Baron, I called him Baron, one syllable, uh, was one of the kindest, gentlest, most sensitive, soft-hearted souls I have ever met. I remember one case we were trying together, and, and he and I, you know, whenever I needed a second chair on a bad case, and I, I was not great on the law. I was pretty good in the courtroom, but not great on the law. I needed Barron's tremendous knowledge of the law sitting next to me, and I let him make all the objections, and we, we probably tried 20 serious felony jury trials together and a couple of misdemeanors. Uh, I, I prosecuted cases against David. I defended cases when he was DA in his court. And then as a judge, he tried four or five cases uh, during my time as a judge. So Baron and I worked together uh, on all, in all different roles in the courtroom. I had tremendous respect for him. He had one deficiency in, in my opinion. Uh, and that is he just couldn't get mean. Sometimes you got to get mean with a witness. And uh, especially when the jury wants you to get mean with a witness because they don't like the witness either. And uh, he just couldn't do that. He just had just too soft-hearted to do it. I remember one case we were trying and I had assigned him a witness and uh, we, we didn't know the significance of the witness until we got into the trial and at a break, I said, Baron, you fixed it. You're going to have to get mean and attack this witness. And he couldn't do it. He just, his heart was too soft. Now, he wanted me to do it. Uh, he was always telling me to do it, but he just couldn't do it. Uh, all these trials that I had with him, he was, he was always cracking jokes and at the break and to the prosecutor and to me, and, and he gets you laughing, and you, you didn't want to laugh at something inappropriately in front of the jury, so you tried to keep a straight face, but then he would make some little face or some comment to redirect your attention back to his joke, and it was hard to, you know, just keep a straight face. Uh, all these witty remarks that he would make, and he would... Inevitably, somebody in the trial would, would cause him to compare that person's looks with an animal or an object of some kind. And uh, those of you that have worked with him know how he does that. And uh, one time, uh, we were trying a case in, in Grimes County, and this court reporter was constantly interrupting me and saying, you need to speak louder. Well, that's one thing I've never been accused of doing in a courtroom. Or, you need to use a microphone. Like, I, just constantly interrupting my flow and, and uh, butting in. And uh, if 
finally I got enough and I could see the jury was getting upset with her too and I just turned to her right in front of the jury and said you are the rudest court reporter I have ever seen <laughs> turned back to the jury and continued my argument and uh, after at the next break uh, Baron and I are talking over to the side of the courtroom I said Baron what's up with your court reporter over here and he looked at her and he said He said, have you ever noticed how she looks like an old Suffolk? <laughs> I said, Baron, what the hell is a Suffolk? He said, that's an English sheep. <laughs> I had to go home that night and look up on the internet an old Suffolk. And sure enough, the Suffolk had the same facial characteristics as, as this court reporter. And then, Frank Blake, is Frank here? Frank is here, okay. I think he said this to your face, so maybe it'll be all right if I talk about you, Frank. <laughs> he called Frank, who's tall, dark, and handsome, uh, a very prim and proper lawyer, always courteous and ethical, but Frank is known every now and then to, to bow, you know, like this uh, when he finishes his uh, argument. And he'll, he'll bow as he's leaving the conversation. You know. And so Baron named him the Dipping Bird. <laughs> and then there was uh, Sheriff Travis Neely former sheriff over in Madison County who testified in a case and said a couple of things that Barron didn't like. And uh, after he testified, Barron says to me, you ever notice Sheriff Neely's head looks like a big old pear? <laughs> <laughs> and on and on with these, with these stories. I got to tell this story. Carter didn't tell it. it it's kind of ribald, but I'm going to go ahead and venture out. Uh, Baron and Carter are trying this case, and Billy told me the story, and so did Baron. With Judge Ernst over in uh, Centerville. And all three of us just loved Judge Ernst. He was so funny and witty and smart and he would play games with you as a judge. He would see where you're going, and he'd make some comment, you know, to let you know he knew where you were going with it, but even when the prosecutor didn't know where you were going with it. And uh, Judge Ernst, in this case, assessed punishment, and Barron noticed that he was doing a lot of drawings uh, during the trial. So Judge Ernst handed down, I believe, a stiff sentence against this defendant, against Billy and David's client. They were working the case together. So after the, everyone was gone from the courtroom, Barron went up. He saw, he saw Judge Ernst doing some drawings during the trial, and so making a note. So he went up and looked in the trash can, the only one in the courtroom, and found this drawing by Judge Ernst, who had just assessed this stiff sentence, and it was a penis drawn on the page. 
So Baron said, this is evidence he's trying to F our client. <laughs> and so this is back on the get mean topic. Uh, they, they file a motion for new trial and attach this exhibit to it. <laughs> and they're over there trying the motion for new trial, and Judge Ernst is called to the stand uh, about what he was doing uh, with regard to this drawing. And David is telling Billy, uh, who's questioning Judge Ernst, Oh, don't take it easy on him. I feel bad that I did that. And I love George Ernst, and, and I just don't want to seem hurt by this. And, you know, trying to protect Judge Ernst and, and telling Billy not to be too hard on him. And Judge Ernst testifies at some point to Billy, well, everything was going good until David filched my trash can. Baron leads over to Billy and says, get that son of a bitch. <laughs> Unbelievable. Baron and I would, uh, whenever the court's docket and his docket would permit, we'd go over to Hearn and play golf. We'd probably play 50, 60 rounds over there in the last 10 years or so. And Baron was so much fun to play golf with because he would laugh at all his bad shots. You know, I wanted to kick my bag, throw the club, and cuss when I hit a bad shot. Baron would laugh. And the worse the shot, the deeper and longer he would laugh at it. And uh, so another thing he wanted to do was play music on my iPhone while we're playing. And uh, the one song I had to play about every fifth or tenth song was What Makes Bob Holler uh, by Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. He'd love that song. And on there, when Bob would holler, Baron would holler with him. And he wanted me to holler. So I think it'd be appropriate to play that song, What Makes Bob Holler, because this was Baron on a golf course. Can we play the song? Turn that, turn that up loud. There is a band man, a famous top hand, who hails from down old Texas way. And Oklahoma from Duwadiddy to New York City. You heard him holler when he played. Folks play the jukebox and write to disc jocks. Truck drivers, deep sea divers, they ask. They say, What makes Bob holler? What oh. makes Bob holler? Oh. When I asked Bob, he explained this way, and he said, Well, when a little sweetie pie in a skirt twirls by and rolls those big blue eyes, oh, oh. I holler. And he when me to holler too. says she loves my fiddle lick, well, now then, that can do the trick. Oh, I holler. 
makes Bob holler. And when Bob hollers, it makes you feel so happy and gay. Okay, what makes Bob holler? Bet your bottom dollar. It's just because he feels that way. All right, that's, that's enough. But Baron was so much fun to play golf with. Uh, you just, we'd get out there and laugh and cut up and, and drive that cart. And he'd hit balls off into the brush and chase some rabbit or a squirrel out, and he'd just die laughing at that. He thought that was hilarious. And uh, David was my dear friend. Uh, I, I, this has been a real blow to lose him. Uh, I don't think life will ever be the same for me without Baron. Uh, brilliant lawyer, uh, kind and gentle person. I think that Amy's statement that she wrote toward the end of his obituary is so eloquent and so right on that I, I wanted to read it to you. He was a kind, generous, funny man. David loved the combat of the courtroom without being personally offensive to his colleagues. David loved fighting to protect the rights of the accused citizens he represented and was a zealous advocate for the downtrodden. Barron was asked by Shane Phelps to give the prayer at one of our great Atticus Finch uh, gatherings uh, every year we, ga we gather to celebrate Atticus Finch and what he stood for and to be reminded of those principles ourselves as trial lawyers. And Barron wrote down his prayer, and Amy found it and gave it to me. I wanted to read it since there's so many lawyers here. On Atticus Finch Day, April 18th, 2019, and this is written in Barron's handwriting. Dear Lord, we gather on this occasion to honor the late Harper Lee and her masterpiece for all ages, the novel To Kill a Mockingbird. In a more general sense, we celebrate the friendship between the defense bar and prosecutors in Brazos County. Lord, we pray that you foster mutual respect between each side of the bar and that you give us the patience to be slow to anger and quick to forgive the slights or perceived slights. Let us represent our clients or the state with zeal tempered with ethics, knowing only you can provide perfect justice and only in the heavenly realms. Bless our criminal justice system and let us use our God-given talents to ensure that the system works according to your plans and not our own hopes or desires. In Jesus' name, amen. That's the kind of person David was at his at heart. He loved the Bible. Uh, Amy gave me uh, about eight or nine of his Bibles, and in there he made notes all through different passages, a little notes to himself, what was going on in his life as he was reading this. And I remember one, one in there uh, that I'd forgotten happened. He said, I just finished reading the New Testament. It was in 1999, about a year. He put the date he started and the date he ended, and 
put me in there as the one that challenged him to do that and uh, had a little prayer in there of thanks to God. Uh, Barron was an authentic believer in the Lord Jesus. Uh, his favorite verse is on the back of your program here uh, it's Galatians 2.20 you'd like to read along with me I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me the life I now live in the body I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for Barron realized through his AA program and through the Bible that his main enemy was his selfishness, which is all of our main enemies. The main enemy is not the guy over there, the person over here. The main enemy is under our skin, our arrogance, our pride, and our self-centeredness. And the Bible teaches that there's a mystical way in which we died with Christ. And we're raised with him to walk in newness of life. So Barron understood that the bad things that happened to him, that made him weak, that, that caused him adversity, were just things that God could turn around and use for good. They would take him to the cross, and he would bear that cross because he knew the resurrection and the power was going to come out of the things he suffered. And I think that really changed his life. He grew from there and was transformed as a result of his faith and understanding of adversity from then on out. So, Baron is in heaven today, and there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more tears. this time uh, let's sing Amazing Grace. All of you should have a handout uh, on that beautiful song and we'll just sing it a cappella. Would everyone please rise? I'm not a singer but I'll lead the singing. Amazing Grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Last verse. When we've been there, Ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. You can have a seat. Let me close with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the
the life of our dear friend, David Stewart Barron. Keep his memory forever fresh in our minds and hearts. Let us learn from his example how to always be a caring but joyous person, how to bless the lives of others, how to be a loyal friend, and how to care for the little people that no one else cares about. We thank you that David now resides with you, O oh God. Grant that we would carry on his great banner, equal justice for all. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Yes, our friend David was quite the character. I recall when he uh, was announcing his candidacy for District Attorney of Grimes, Madison, and Leon County. Uh, it was held uh, as a reception over in Navasota, and uh, it was quite a joyous occasion. But the thing I recall was he had gotten a uh, hat box, I think it was, and he had pasted an 8 by 10 picture of himself on top of the box and had cut out a hole where his... Uh, mouth was and the caption underneath read read uh, put your money where my mouth is <laughs> uh, he was successful in that run for uh, district attorney and held that spot for many years and had many adventures uh, which we will go into later uh, on in our podcast of murder and malfeasance and Another thing that comes to me is we, David and I did a few plays together, and one of them was Key Largo. And some of you may have seen the movie, uh, not realized that it was also a play. I was cast as the villain Johnny Rocco, and uh, David was my uh, one of my henchmen, Angel, and uh, he was quite funny. He, he wore a wife beater um, undershirt, and before every performance, he would get a spray bottle full of water and spray himself down where he was uh, perspiring in extreme heat because that's, that's part of the play. It's, it's hot even during a hurricane. And uh, the thing is, he never took that undershirt home to watch it so after three weeks of uh, spritzing down his undershirt uh, for every performance and never taking it home to wash it you can imagine what it looked like toward the end and to this day I mean that was well over 30 34 35 years ago he and I when we'd run into each other, would still recite lines from that play. I mean, it was hilarious. Uh, another play we were in together was um, uh, Greater Tuna, and he played the Reverend Spikes, who was president of the Smut Snatchers uh, Club uh, of Greater Tuna, which was uh, amazingly funny as well. Also, we had to cram 
in one day all the lines from a play called Lone Star. It's a one-act play. And this was, I'm thinking, 86, 87. And we uh, had to memorize these lines in an afternoon to do a performance of that one-act play that evening at 7 o'clock. And I tell you, we were under a lot of pressure, but even then it was a barrel of laughs. And uh, the uh, it was a private performance, I think, for API, and uh, those, those people loved it as well. So, and there are many other stories of our good old friend David, and I'm sure some of you have some. And if you'd like to contribute, I will tack them on to this podcast at a later time. And you can email your questions, comments, concerns at murderandmalfeasance at gmail.com. That's murderandmalfeasance at gmail.com. So it's time to say goodbye to our brother Baron. And to tell you that the first one we were working on together, uh, that podcast will be coming up. And that will be very soon, I hope. And I hope you'll all turn in uh, and uh, turn on to that. Uh, That will be posted at, uh, I believe, uh, Spotify probably Apple Podcasts and so forth. So we'll see you there. And until that time, this is Donnie Wilson at Murder and Malfeasance. Good night. Next time on Murder and Malfeasance. In the early morning hours on September 28, 1994, Stanley Allison Baker prepared to walk the four miles to Winn-Dixie and College Station from his apartment in Bryan, and he was on a mission. And his mission was to kill his boss. But sometimes, plans change. I was really depressed all the time. I just wanted it to end. It's weird the way that it happened. It's like I just went insane. I'm just glad it's about over. I'm looking forward to the last bill, but not the part that comes after. (laughs) 